Hello friends, welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, scholars, really anyone who loves the Bible and wants to understand it better, which means you. So thanks for joining us. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week we are bringing you preaching tips on Exodus 24 verses 12 to 18 and maybe a little bit more as we tend to do. This is the first reading that is scheduled in the lectionary for February 23rd, Transfiguration Sunday. So if you are tired of preaching on Transfiguration, because let's face it, we get it every single year, then take heart. Because today we are going to oil those gears and get you moving with a special episode with guest expert Dr. Amanda Mbubi. That's right. Dr. Mbubi is an assistant professor of religion at High Point University in High Point, North Carolina. She has a background in philosophy and literary theory and got her PhD in religion from Duke University as well as a certificate in nonprofit management. She finds herself drawn to the Hebrew Bible because of its vivid stories and rich language and because of the way that it connects the various streams of her multiracial identity as somebody who grew up Jewish in the black church. Her work focuses on questions of identity and community both in the Bible and in contemporary conversations about how we live with those texts and with each other. And we would recommend to you all that you take a look at her book, Belonging in Genesis, Biblical Israel and the Politics of Identity Formation, which came out recently from Baylor University Press. Amanda also has a blog at amandambuvi.com, and we'll put a link to that on our website so you all can check that out and see what she's throwing up there on the interwebs. Well, Dr. Amanda Mbuvi, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. So you sound like you've had a really interesting background. Just even your growing up must have been fascinating. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I, I guess I'll, I'll spell out a little bit about what I mean when I say that I grew up Jewish in the black church. So my mom's side of the family is African-American. My father's side of the family is Ashkenazic Jewish. And... Being part of the Jewish people is something that's always really resonated with me and I really have strongly connected with, even before I was at a point in my life where that was something kind of fully reflected in my experience. And so when I was growing up in Sunday school, for example, we would be learning about Jews and Gentiles and they'd say, oh, we're all Gentiles, except Amanda. Uh, um, oh, my God. <laughs> so it was something, you know, that I was always trying to work out and things like that. It's nothing like being put on the spot in Sunday school like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. I was ready for it. Um, I think also coming out of the black church tradition, that process was a little easier than it might have been in another community because there's so many points of connection and overlap. And that's a big part of why I ended up as a Hebrew Bible scholar, um, that the, the stories of the Hebrew Bible were very familiar and had a very intimate relationship with them. You just um, spoke about them often and connected with them. And um, it, I was drawn, in, besides to the Hebrew language, also to the the way in which the stories themselves are a common language between the two parts of my ancestry, mm -hmm. um, and now also with my African husband's heritage as well. Well, we'd love, Amanda, for, for you to read the lectionary text for us. Uh, could you do that? That's Exodus 24, 12 to 18. Sure. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the teachings and commandments which I have inscribed to instruct them. So Moses and his attendant Joshua arose, and Moses ascended the mountain of God. 
To the elders, he had said, wait here for us until we return to you. You have Aaron and her with you. Let anyone who has a legal matter approach them. When Moses had ascended the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The presence of the Lord abode on Mount Sinai and the cloud hid it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Now the presence of the Lord appeared in the sight of the Israelites as a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses went inside the cloud and ascended the mountain, and Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I love that you read from the JPS version because it, I feel like it's such a, it's a great job of capturing the drama of this text. Like this is a very dramatic, you know, kind of like, who was Moses in the old Ten Commandments movie? Oh, Charlton Heston. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this feels like Charlton Heston, you know? <laughs> So this falls in the lectionary on the Christian holiday of transfiguration. So a lot of times this story is used in the Christian church as kind of a setup for understanding this moment that happened in Jesus's life. Before we get to some of the pitfalls of doing that, can you just kind of lay out for us a little bit why this might have been a story that first century Jews would pull on to understand Jesus's life? Like, why was this such a resonant story in for first century Jews? So this episode and the, the kind of the, the encounter between God and Moses on Sinai more generally, like this mm-hmm. kind of extended encounter in these verses, but kind of throughout several chapters of Exodus, is kind of the center um, not only of the book of Exodus, but I would say also of Jewish life in many respects. Because, um, and the way I explain this to students is um, we talk about a timeline. And if you picture a timeline and you picture a line growing across a page and the little notches to represent different things, um, that this episode is not just another notch on the timeline, but it's as if you take the paper that the timeline is written on, fold it up and stick a pencil through it so that that pencil touches every point on the line at the same time. And so the idea is that in kind of having a meeting with God, a meeting with God is not two o'clock on a Tuesday, (laughs) right? (laughs) A meeting with God is something kind of bigger than space and time. And that resonates much more widely than just one moment. And so mm. within this encounter, even beyond the words in Exodus, there's this understanding that what's given is kind of everything needed for Jewish life um, on into the future. Well, I love that. I'd never heard that before or even really thought about it like that. But I love that because it, it you know, it it's this idea of it rippling out in every direction, almost, you know, what came before, what's coming after, everything from this almost cosmic moment or where the cosmic sort of comes down and touches the human uh, and that it changes everything. And this and this seems like a really, even within the, the sort of Sinai story, this is a pretty central moment, right? Because this is that meeting, the, the sort mm-hmm. of coming together of Moses and God. And there's, there's other people there as well, uh, for part of it at least. You've got uh, Joshua and the elders and uh, the sons of Aaron are there earlier in the chapter. So this is sort of like you've got the whole people and then it's narrowing down to a smaller and smaller group until Moses is sort of by himself in the presence of God mm-hmm. where all the action happens. <laughs> yes, and this is not a coincidence. And uh, one of the things that the anthropologist Mary Douglas does um, talking about this passage and making some connections in Leviticus is this kind of three-tiered structure where you have 
the the base of the mountain where all the people are. Mm -hmm. And then you have the 70 elders that sort of go up partway. And then you have kind of Moses going to the top and into the where the cloud covers and kind of in the presence of God. That that pattern is repeated in the structure of the tabernacle um, with the outer court and then inner court and the Holy of Holies. And then again on the body of the sacrificial animal where they're the parts that everybody eats, the priest eats, and no one eats because it's burned for God. So, I mean, that is really a fascinating way to look at the structure of the whole thing going on here. I wonder if you put yourself in the, in the place of a preacher wanting to bring this lectionary text to a community, how much uh, do you think that that sort of background of the, of the whole of the Sinai encounter and kind of the structure of that, um, how would you communicate that maybe to a congregation in a way that doesn't sound like we're just uh, veering off into scholarly minutia? Yeah, how to, like how to communicate how important this is without losing people. <laughs> right. I would say go bigger. I would say go even bigger mm-hmm. and, and go for the whole book of Exodus. Um, I like to tell students a story about my advisor, um, my, my dissertation advisor, when she went to see the Prince of Egypt movie. The movie ended and people started to leave the theater and she said, is it intermission? What's happening? We <laughs> <laughs> said, no, it's over. I'm like, what do you mean it's over? They haven't built the tabernacle. But we live with this idea of the Exodus story as it's about getting out of Egypt, yay, you know, out of Egypt. But the book of Exodus, there's a, you know, that happens about 15 chapters in, right? Mm-hmm. So why do we go all the way to 40 chapters in the book of Exodus? And I think it's really helpful to think about the whole trajectory of that movement from being slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt to being uh, God slaves, God, people of God, people who serve God instead of serving Pharaoh. And kind of this, the Sinai encounter is the moment of that transition where people not just leave behind something in Egypt, but actually take up something new. So this is the identity-forming moment in Exodus. Yes. Oh, that's a great way to think about it. Yes, kind of laying out a new way of life um, and a way of hosting the presence of God that they're then going to need to carry forward into the promised land in their future. There's a lot of language in this text about encountering and experiencing God's presence in a way that Mm -hmm. provokes a reaction. Yes, and I think the the spectacle aspect of this passage is really important, and I think that might be one thing people would gain from spending some time with this as opposed to just immediately going for the transfiguration or just using this as pointing to the transfiguration and not really doing anything more because this text really emphasizes that even in the end when it's just kind of God and Moses, that it's still all the people watching, that it's something that everyone's part of in these different ways. It's not just kind of an isolated encounter. And I think that's really helpful because I think sometimes when for us as readers, we sort of overestimate our role and we're not Moses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're <laughs> yeah. at the bottom of the mountain and, you know, we're getting to hear that perspective, but we sort of put ourselves a little too close to the center. And I think it can be helpful to kind of realize the layers of, of mediation in some of these situations. Yeah, I think that's right on. So maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, verses 15 through 17 or 15 through 18 and some of the, the language there about the cloud and the fire on the mountain. What, what would you say is the significance of those words in this, in this experience of a kind of theophany, a revelation of God? 
Well, I, I'm not sure how thorough you want me to be with this. I mean, the, it's an image that recurs, right? So as the people continue to, to, to kind of go through the wilderness, they're led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So it's not just in this moment, but it's a long-standing pattern of how God's presence is uh, manifest to the people. Um, it fits into that broader trajectory. I think, you know, also going back to some of the, the Near, Near Eastern context, I, that cloud imagery is part of the theological language of the wider society or societies mm -hmm. um, that Israel takes up and uses to talk about its God. And so that imagery of being associated with clouds, riding on the clouds, and, you know, fire, that it's so powerful. I mean, thinking about what a powerful force it is, both visually, it, you can smell it. I think people then lived with a sense of vulnerability that Americans now, or most Americans, maybe don't quite understand or relate to, um, just in terms of the forces of nature and, and all kinds of things. Um, I don't think people felt quite as in control of their lives as we do and as quite as sure mm -hmm. of themselves. And so I think there's a reason why the sort of storm imagery and some of these you know, things also come to be used to talk about God because it, it helps people think about how we live with the awesomeness of the world we're in and also the awesomeness of the world in relation to the awesome of, of God, but also seeing God through, um, like in the midst of these forces that can be terrifying and overwhelming and kind of understanding how within that there is a presence and a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, even up until maybe a hundred or a couple hundred years ago, life was lived always on the edge in a way that um, we don't experience it as now. Although I do think that some of that is an illusion that we, um, mm -hmm. we kid ourselves with. I, mm -hmm. I used to live in a really small town in Minnesota and there was a big storm coming in and it was so small that we didn't have tornado sirens or anything like that. So if you knew the big storm was coming, you literally had to go out on your porch and look to see, you know, is the sky green? Do I see any funnel clouds? That sort of a thing. And it occurred to me one moment when I was doing that, that even with all of our technology today, the way we deal with bad weather is still the same. We go underground mm -hmm. and wait for it to pass and hope it doesn't kill anybody. You know, like that's the same thing. So I think I think you're absolutely right. And and we kid ourselves sometimes that we think we're in more control of our life than we actually are. Well, this is great. Um... I wonder, just to uh, throw out one more little detail in the text that I imagine that uh, preachers studying this might wonder about, and that's the, the numbers, the time periods here. So there's a mention of the, the presence of the Lord on the mountain, uh, hid it for six days. There's sort of this waiting period, and then on the seventh day, God calls to Moses from the cloud to say, come on, come on further. So there's sort of a, he's in the waiting room for for six days and then comes comes further up on the seventh. And then he's up there, it says, for 40 days and 40 nights, which again, that sounds like a pretty common biblical number as well. Um, do you have any sense of uh, their significance in this text? Are they just sort of common numbers to use or do they have some sort of meaning to illuminate this text? I think, I think whenever we see familiar numbers in the Bible, we should definitely connect the dots. I think it's intentional to kind of make us think about the other passages, the other places where these numbers occur, and to think about what's being echoed or, you know, what's being suggested by them. Um, so the 40, for example, is, um, in some ways we can call it 
it can be the sort of tribulation number, but it can also be the honeymoon number. It's that wilderness experience, which is sort of the site of both things. It's a, it can mm-hmm. be a site of trial of testing, but it's also a site of intimacy with God and kind of how those things coexist. I mean, thinking back to Noah, um, with 40 days and 40 nights of rain, um, you know, in the flood where he's being um, displaced and it's a kind of exile from land itself, not just a land, but land. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, in the midst of that kind of being preserved and kind of brought to God. And I think that um, the, the 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, I think the reason those 40s keep coming back is to kind of point to the kind of time that it is, the kind of experience that it is. I was also really struck by what you said, Amanda, about the 40 days, and even when it is kind of a, a time of trial or testing or difficulty, something something new happens right at, on the other side of that 40 period. So whether it's the, the flood and, and after the the flood, you know, there's new life in the repopulating of the earth, or after the wandering in the wilderness, there's the entering into the promised land. Uh, this, at the end of this 40 days and 40 nights, you have the ins- the instructions from God that are there for the people. So there's that that sort of new moment of a, a renewed, or, or the relationship with God is taken into a new phase or a new step. Although it's not exactly clear, because I was just thinking, yeah, because at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, you have the golden calf episode. Although the golden calf is not as dumb as it comes across. Is not as dumb? Oh, you mean making a golden calf? Say a little bit more about that real quick. Sure. I mean, because for a contemporary reader, we can look at it and it's like people live through all the miracles of the Exodus. And, you know, every, if you could just have one miracle, everything would be so much more clear. And then all of a sudden they're worshiping a statue they made 10 minutes ago. Like, what are they stupid? <laughs> like, how do they not know they just did that? Um, but to realize that the idea of worshiping with statues, that was really central the way like when we go to a sporting event, we expect a mascot, you know, to kind of be the focal point of spirit and energy. And we know it's a person in a panther suit. It's not like we can't figure that out. (laughs) But that's kind of how we do that. That's kind of how we express that and kind of the where we center our attention and energy on. And so the idea of building a statue as a focal point of worship makes sense. And the fact that it's a calf, also, uh, the the bull is the symbol of the Canaanite god El, and El is a Canaanite god whose imagery, the kind of the Canaanite Zeus, kind of the chief of the Canaanite pantheon. Um, and a lot of that has been taken up, even the name has been taken up as a name for Israel's god. Mm-hmm. So the assumption that like, well, sure, this would be the symbol of this god. Um, mm-hmm. There's a logic to it that's not totally out of left field, even though that's not where Exodus is going. Yeah, yeah. And isn't Baal another Canaanite god? I think the symbol for Baal is a calf in some some of the Ugaritic literature. Yeah, and Baal's the storm god. So the yeah, cloud exactly. stuff is the Baal imagery, which also yeah. the imagery gets used, but the name, no, absolutely yeah. not. Although we, I mean, according yeah. to the, the dominant voice in the Bible, I mean, if you look at the names that people had, clearly they did use Baal names. Um, yeah. like L names, but, um, right, right. Okay. Well, we, we should, we should make a turn here towards uh, more specific preaching advice for our listeners here. So uh, one of the things that we always do is to highlight anything that we think in this text might be a preaching pitfall. Some of our preachers might go and kind of uh, get themselves off track and we want to help them avoid those and, and hop over those to the really helpful stuff. 
one, one that I thought of had to do with the connection of this text to Transfiguration Sunday and the, and the way that the imagery in this passage is kind of recycled in the, in the gospel reading for this week as well. I tend to think that it's, it's fine to preach the gospel reading here and to draw in this imagery, but uh, I, w- I would have preachers be careful not to just skirt over all of the really rich stuff that we've been able to talk about in our conversation here about the importance of this text in its context of the story of Israel and their introduction, their encounter with this God who becomes their God. When you pull this text into a sermon on the Transfiguration, you should carry all that stuff with you. Um, so that, that's one thing that I would say is, a, is an encouragement or an, a pitfall to avoid. But what, what else would either of you have to say about either that or other pitfalls that you would recognize in this text? I, I think related to what you're just saying, I, it's something I'm really seeing increasingly with students. They don't know how to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Um, not at all, not at all. And so there's, um, I'll see if this makes any sense, but it's, if you think of someone who's not familiar with the word Kleenex and they say, what is Kleenex? And you say, oh, Kleenex is a tissue. Okay, well, now you've equated Kleenex and tissue, but you don't know any more about the thing than you did before. You've just kind of, you know, you have two names for it. You haven't Uh actually said anything. And I think that's kind of what they do with some of the connections to the New Testament. They're like, oh, it's in the Gospels. And then they're done. But they're not really thinking about, well, does this have any meaning behind it that actually deepens the meanings when things are invoked in the New Testament? So, for example, when I was in high school, um, somebody we know, um, kind of someone in my friend circle named Hart, brought this other person, John, to a party. And so every time we saw him again, we'd call him John Hart's friend to distinguish them from all the other Johns we know. Like that was his name, John Hart's friend. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> but this person, John, had his own life. You know, his whole existence was not circumscribed by being a friend. That's just how we came to know him. And I think a lot of time for Christians who kind of come to all this stuff through Jesus, everything is just, oh, well, this is like Jesus, or this says Jesus is coming, or this talks about something that will happen to Jesus. But what's lost in all of that is that these texts actually mean something and are contributing something and are actually saying something about who Jesus is, not just the fact of Jesus. And so when, you know, when these connections are happening, it's not just saying Jesus is coming, here's Jesus, but it's, it's explaining who Jesus is because these things already have meaning. The authority of these texts is giving authority to Jesus and kind of understanding that makes it do more than just be an equivalent yeah. Yeah, that's that was I the pitfall I was going to go to is whatever you do preachers do not talk about the transfiguration moment as replacing this moment <laughs> on Sinai. There's no sort of like rejection of this moment. It is in line with in continuation of it's used to understand. I mean it it is pivotal for understanding what goes on in the transfiguration moment, but it does not the transfiguration moment does not replace it. Um so mm-hmm. I think those were the the pitfalls that I was. Yeah, yeah, that's to. and it's significant to note that in the New Testament passage, when Jesus is on the mountain, uh, just like when Moses was on this mountain and and had a, you know the elders with him and all of that for part of it, Jesus is on the mountain, has his disciples, but also who's there? Moses is there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this right. isn't getting rid of Moses. <laughs> this is drawing Moses into the Jesus story. Yeah, or maybe drawing Jesus into the Moses story. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, nice. How about um, how about preaching angles? Uh, Amanda, is there any sort of direction you might think preachers would go? Or I think one thing that might be interesting to explore with this text is the communal dimension. The fact that this is a communal event and what it means to think about relationship with God as a community and worshiping as a community. I think that could be something really interesting to explore. Um, encountering the word of God was something that happened in community. It's not kind of a person curled up in a corner with a book, mm-hmm. but that it's something that people are coming together for and sort of thinking not only about how each person individually um, lives in the word, but thinking about what it means collectively to be the community that bears and shares the word. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think what you said earlier, too, about the perspective from which we read this text that it's actually quite preachable the way that you put that, that we might tend to read this through Moses's eyes, but what if we were to place ourselves in the position of the people at the foot of the mountain and experience this whole story through their perspective? I think that that's an interesting way to bring out that communal sense of what's, what's happening in this text. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Tim? What do you got? Yeah, well, there was a, maybe a couple things that came to mind for me, uh, one way that I thought about maybe getting into a sermon that would put this text in conversation with the Transfiguration text is uh, sort of playing with the way that God is uh, visible and invisible or revealed and hidden at the same time. I find that that's uh, a theme in both of these texts. And, uh, you know, that resonates with my own experience of God, where sometimes I feel like I've got a, a pretty good, you know, line of connection between me and God, but other times God seems really hidden. And that seems to resonate with the experience of uh, the, the people of Israel in their context and in the story about Jesus, where these few disciples get to experience this. But then Jesus says, now don't tell anybody about this until after mm-hmm. I'm raised from the dead. So it's uh, revealed, but also hidden at the same time. So there could be a sermon in there, I think. Yeah, I think so too, especially because um, taking kind of both of your sermon angles together, it's the hiddenness, which sometimes really necessitates the communal piece of it. Um, if you are just on your own, curled up in the corner with a book, uh, experiencing the hiddenness of God, that becomes a lot harder than if you're with a community, either going through it together or at different points in the hiddenness and revealed of God. The other thing I, I thought of actually just during our conversation here is the importance of the, the giving of the Torah. That's the, the climax, the pinnacle, to use mountain language, of, of this story. And when, when this is being drawn into the gospel reading where God says, this is my son, listen to him, what Jesus is doing is a, is a working out of this Torah. And so if you want to understand what Jesus is doing, if you want to listen to him, you have to listen to the Exodus story. So I, that might be a way to tie the two passages together as well. Yeah, I like that. And there's a rabbinic story, which is probably, I'm not sure when this is from, probably later than the Gospels, but kind of going back to the folded timeline idea of this moment, that it, it depicts Moses in, in a study house where the rabbis are discussing something. And Moses is totally lost, is not following the conversation, <laughs> doesn't, you know, does not getting what's going on. So finally, Moses asks a question, you know, where are you getting this? And they say, oh, this is what God told Moses on Mount Sinai. <laughs> and Moses goes, oh, okay, good then. And Moses is you know, happy with that answer. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Rachel, what, what's your uh, what's your preaching angle on this? <clears throat> Yeah, I would I would um, echo both of your excellent preaching angles. Um, I think the one that I uh, the one piece of the transfiguration that I always really resonate with is Peter um, and how he wants to build three dwelling places and stay there. And God's just kind of like you know divine face palm, like oh my gosh, you're still not getting this. No, you have to go. You know, um, I think that taking. This, as you were talking about early on, Amanda, taking the whole of Exodus um, with us, including that golden calf story, which, as you pointed out, is not a dumb thing to do, was very logical, was just misguided, right? In some ways, a lot like what Peter was doing. Very logical, misguided. Um, I think there's a really beautiful encouragement in the life of faith there in that it sort of doesn't matter how spectacular the experience with the divine is, you're still going to continue to mess up in that relationship. And what becomes important then in that moment is that sort of concept of Torah, that concept of those songs and poems and stories which can continue to guide you to meaning, um, even through those moments of really high experiences of the divine kavod, um, through those experiences of us not quite getting right what God would like us to do with that experience of the divine kavod. Um, so I think that was one piece that I was looking at. And then I think the other piece that I would talk about too is that element of discomfort that is inherent and in some ways I think essential to the life of faith. Um, when when the elders saw God, had that vision of God, I imagine that to be really awe-inspiring perhaps scary. Um, Certainly not something you would want at nine o'clock on a Tuesday night when you're just wanting to snuggle up in bed. You know, there's there's benefits to this communal, beautiful experience of faith. Um, And there's also discomfort in it as well. And that that is okay and even a necessary part of the process. Um, I think we, especially as Americans, think that if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in life, if life is right, it's going to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that these stories both challenge that in a really helpful way. Um, so those are, those are what I was thinking. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and I've heard uh, people say at a church once that was looking to try to um, be a little more diverse and kind of reach out and do some things. Some people were complaining about it and they were saying, but, I, but it's awkward. And they were upset because they weren't getting in like the zone, you know, like Uh it was getting in the way of they're getting in the zone. And we there's this temptation to think the zone is the goal. But, you know, if we go back to the like, we're not Moses in this, you know, everyone else is at the, you know, they're watching for a while, but they're just waiting all this time. And what are they supposed to be doing? And it's 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 really helpful to kind of not read the Bible through the of course they said this. And of course they did this. And of course you're supposed to do that and kind of really see how much how much of the ambiguity and uncertainty is in there and how much people are trying to kind of maneuver through that and to be more willing to embrace that in our own lives. Oh, gosh, that'd be a really beautiful sermon if you started at the base of the mountain and then kind of went up to the top of the mountain, transitioned over to the transfiguration, talked a little bit about Jesus and Peter, and then brought it back around to those folks at the base of the mountain mm. again. That could be a really beautiful structure to a sermon that would could kind of accomplish some of the things we've talked about today. Well, before Rachel uh, writes our whole sermon for us, <laughs> why, don't we bring, we should why don't we bring our conversation to a close? Uh, wow, what a what a rich uh, text this has 
turned out to be and a rich conversation we've been able to have here. Amanda, it's been so great to talk with you about it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Great. Yeah. Uh, remember, friends, you can have a, a link to Dr. Mbuvi's work on our website, her book, her uh, blog. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then subscribe to the podcast and maybe give us a rating so that more people can get to know what we're doing here. Thanks again to Amanda for being with us and to Kai Engel for the music during the reading and to all of you for listening. Uh, until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and happy preaching.